Section 18 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 12, Part 2. Irene and Anna Komnena. When the period of mourning came to an end, Alexis turned to face the numerous and pressing enemies of his empire, and his mother became the active ruler. Her granddaughter would have us believe that the elder Anna had no ambition to wield power. She was disposed to retire at once into a monastery and it was only in obedience to a solemn decree of alexis that she consented to remain in the palace and use the powers of her absent son but anna komnena the royal historian possessed in a considerable degree the faculty for ruse and duplicity which distinguished her family and we have little difficulty in seeing that the older anna claimed and clung to power. Irene was, of course, still a negligible child. Anna at once set about the restoration of discipline in the palace, which had been so grossly neglected under Nicephorus and Maria. Hours were fixed for meals and prayers and the chanting of hymns, and her table was rarely without the blessing of some priest or monk who would discuss with her the sacred books and theological issues in which she was interested. Sober in diet, liberal to the poor and the church, awake beyond the hours of most mortals, with her long prayers, yet up early in the morning for those imperial duties which the golden bull of her son had laid on her, Anna was at least not unworthy of the power she had intrigued to secure. We must, however, not exaggerate her political influence. A few years later, we find Alexis, when he sets out for the field, entrusting the reins of government to his brother, and no doubt Isaac generally controlled the administration. Of Irene, we hear little until the latter part of her husband's reign, when her services as nurse make him appreciate her value. In spite of the glowing assurances of their daughter, we perceive confidently that Irene was slighted, both by the mother and the son, and we shall ultimately find her dismissing him from the world with an assurance of her profound disdain. For two years, the chronicles are silent about her, and the one reference to her in twenty years is that she bore children to her spouse. As Christmas approached, in 1083, she began to feel the first pangs of travail. Alexis was expected home from his campaign against Robert Giscard in two days, and Anna Komnena, who is not hypersensitive in her narrative, relates that the young mother signed her body with a cross and said stay where you are my boy until your father arrives it was not a boy but the historian herself who saw the light two days later and anna 
a fierce and murderous rebel against her brother, asks us to applaud her very early practice of the virtue of obedience. In view of this silence concerning the empresses, we will hold ourselves dispensed from following Alexis through the campaigns, plots and counterplots of the next twenty years. Five years were spent in struggle with Robert Giscard of Italy. Five in repelling the wild Patsinax of Scythia. Five more in suppressing conspiracies or alleged conspiracies against the throne. It may seem ungenerous to suspect that the hard-working Alexis invented these conspiracies in order to rid his camp and court of suspected relatives or nobles, but Byzantine historians not obscurely hint such a suspicion. One conspiracy only need be related, since Irene appears on the stage at the time. Some years after his accession to the throne, the date is uncertain, Alexis consented to the retirement of his mother into the monastery, to which her granddaughter says her heart had always turned. Very probably, Irene, as she grew to womanhood, resented the older woman's restraint and piety, and insisted on her removal. She died a nun a few years afterwards. From that time Alexis drew nearer to Irene, and used to take her with him on his campaigns. In 1092 or 1093 there was trouble in Dalmatia, and Irene accompanied her husband and shared his tent in the camp. It was noticed with some alarm by the officers that Nicephorus Diogenes, son of Idosia, who had received imperial dignity in his infancy and might aspire to regain it, pitched his tent nearer to that of the emperor than courtesy permitted. Alexis scouted their suspicions and retired to rest with Irene. But in the middle of the night, the maid who was engaged in keeping the flies or other insects of the royal sleepers aroused them with the news that Nicephorus had entered the tent with a drawn sword. One hesitates to say, which is the more remarkable, that there should be no guard to the imperial tent, or that Alexis should take no notice of this attempt on his life. A few days later, Anna assures us Nicephorus renewed the attempt, and was detected with drawn sword near the emperor's bath. He was now put to the torture and provided a list of nobles, who were obnoxious to the emperor and were duly punished. It is interesting to find that the ex-empress Maria was included among the conspirators, and it was possibly on that occasion that she was sent to a nunnery. But the narrated details of the conspiracy are so clumsy, and the issue proved so profitable to Alexis, that historians regard it with grave suspicion. We come next to the page of Byzantine history, which is least unfamiliar to English readers, the page restored to life by Sir Walter Scott in his Count Robert of Paris. 
but profoundly important as the passage of the first crusaders is in the byzantine history and in the biography of alexis we have no decent pretext to enlarge on that fascinating episode in a biography of the empresses we need say only that irene trembled with her husband or more than her husband at the formidable tide of the invasion thinking to secure a few thousand spears to assist him in his warfare with the turks alexis had added a pathetic if not hypocritical plea to the eloquence of peter the hermit the response was in ten ninety six a devouring and destructive army of locusts a flood of three hundred thousand men women and children who before they could be persuaded to cross the straits and leave their bones on the plains of asia minor gravely embarrassed the byzantine court in their train came a more formidable menace godfrey of bouillon robert of flanders the princes of western chivalry with their hawks and hounds and ladies and their vast hordes of hungry and blustering men-at-arms their suspicions ferocious outbursts disdain and greed of wealth called out every diplomatic resource at the command of alexis and few will do more than smile at his duplicity in such circumstances at one moment when it was rumored in their camp without the walls that alexis had imprisoned some of their leaders they flung themselves against the city and a howl of terror was heard from blackerne to the sea of marmara how alexis astutely drew them from the fascinations of his capital and hovered in their rear jackal-like to recover the towns from which they expelled the turk and at last brought on a conflict of latin and greek must be read in history seven further years of the reign of alexis and irene passed in these adventures the next decade was full of war against bohemond son of his former antagonist robert giscard and other crusaders in the course of the war in eleven o five we again catch a glimpse of irene who accompanied alexis to the camp of thessalonica apropos of the journey her daughter who was now a mature eyewitness of events depicts irene's character in phrases which we read with some discretion she was it seems so devoted to the reading of sacred books the conversation of holy men and the discharge of her domestic duties that she was reluctant to make these journeys indeed she could never appear in public without a nervous blush it is not like the irene whom we shall know more fully anon but her husband needed her and she obeyed plotters and conspirators surrounded him and he suffered acutely from gout in the feet of the constant plots anna offers no explanation it is not from her that we learn how alexis so far debased the coinage that his gold pieces almost entirely bronze were a thing of contempt throughout europe how he further oppressed his subjects with monopolies 
and how savagely he could at times treat malcontents and heretics. His gout, however, she is eager to explain. It was due not to any generosity of diet, but to an injury to his knee in early years, aggravated by the stupid barbarians of the West, the Crusaders, who kept the sacred emperor standing for hours to listen to their unceasing torrents of talk. So Irene had to accompany her husband to chafe his poignant limbs when the gout racked him and to scare away conspirators. She traveled with great modesty in a litter borne by two mules, and so enwrapped with purple that her divine body was not visible. In the following year a conspiracy was detected at Constantinople. A wealthy senator named Solomon and four brothers of Saracenic origin were the chief plotters, and the treasury was enriched by their fortunes. Solomon's mansion was given to Irene, who is said to have restored it to the wife of the senator. For once Anna admits that her father could be truculent. Anna was at the window of the palace overlooking the forum, where the streets near it, when the soldiers and mob passed with the four brother conspirators. They were mounted on oxen and were derisively adorned with the horns and entrails of oxen by the theatrical folk to whom they had been entrusted before their eyes were put out. From another historian we learn that the hair had already been torn by means of pitch from their heads and chins. Anna called her mother and the two women forced Alexis to put an end to the horrible display and spare the prisoner's eyes. A year or two later, Irene is said to have saved her husband's life from fresh conspirators. She had again set out with him for Thessalonica, and as they camped at Psyllus on the way, a plot was formed to murder Alexis, as soon as Irene should return to the city. Alexis would not part with her, and the impatient conspirators threw a parchment in his tent, deriding him for his reluctance to take the field, and urging the dismissal of Irene. Shortly afterwards, a more violent diatribe was placed under their bed while they slept, but one of Irene's eunuchs was on guard and arrested the man who betrayed the plotters. Then the end of Bohemond put an end to the war in the West, and the indefatigable emperor turned to face the Turks and the Crusaders, who had settled in the East. Irene became seriously ill when she accompanied Alexis to the Chersonesus in 1112, yet we find her with him at Philippopolis in the following year. Irene was a little more than a nurse to the gouty monarch during these campaigns, yet we must, in order to understand her last fierce word to him, glance for a moment at the conduct she observed in him. She had for years seen how he conducted wars and diplomacy, chiefly by guile and deceit, and she now saw how he converted heretics. A few years before he had set out to refute the tenets of the Bogomelians, one of the many sects 
mingling Eastern and Western ideas, in which age after age the Protestant feeling against the superstitions and corruption of the Greek Church found expression. By the use of torture, Alexis discovered that the leader of the sect was a staid and venerable monk named Basil, invited the monk to visit him in the palace, and by a grossly hypocritical pretense that he himself leaned to the sect, induced him to talk freely of their doctrines. When he had vomited his heresy, Alexis drew aside the curtain and showed the man that a shorthand writer had secretly taken down his words. Basil was imprisoned, and Alexis spent hours in argumentation with him. And a few years later, the arch-satrap of Satan and large numbers of his followers were burned alive for refusing to see the force of the imperial logic. Similar tactics were now adopted at Philippopolis, where Alexis and Irene spent the greater part of 1113. It was an important seat of the Paulicians, a modified Manichaean sect, and Alexis spent days in disputation with their leaders. When persuasion failed, he resorted to bribery and coercion. These few instances will suffice to illustrate the relations of Irene and Alexis, and we may hasten to the final scene. The last years were occupied with a campaign against the Turks, but Alexis was now seriously ill, and the enemy advanced and reviled him for his cowardice. In their camp they bore about a bed, with an effigy of Alexis, pretending that gouty feet prevented him from taking the field. Irene was awakened one night with the news that the Turks were upon them, and Alexis was forced to let her return to the capital. There is no doubt that she accompanied Alexis on these later campaigns only because he compelled her, and one wonders whether he was not afraid to leave her in the palace. He retreated and recalled her at once to Nicodemia. Here she found that his own subjects were singing on the streets comic songs about the gout of the great emperor and his flight before the Turks. He was undoubtedly very ill, and in the spring of 1118 he was brought back to the palace to die. Then arose a fierce struggle for the throne. Anna Komnena, the princess born in 1083, had been betrothed in her tender years to the Empress Maria's pretty boy, Constantine. The boy died, however, and in time she was married to the distinguished and ambitious noble Nicephorus Briennius, who received the title of Caesar and then that of Panhypersebatos the august above all others. Briennius was a scholar, Anna a protege of female learning, a cyclopedia of arts and philosophy, a most imposing writer, and, strange to say, a spirited and ambitious princess. The brilliance of this imperial pair dazzled the court and the capital and it was very naturally suggested that the crowns could not be placed 
on wiser and more fitting heads than theirs. Such was the opinion of Irene. But Alexis and Irene had three sons, John, Andronicus, and Isaac, and three daughters, Maria, Eudocia, and Theodora, besides the gifted Anna, and the crown belonged by such right as was recognized in Byzantium to the eldest son. John was a plain, quiet youth of as events proved sterling character and no ostentation. His father appreciated him, though few others knew him. He observed with sullen eyes the efforts of his mother to displace him, and secretly engaged officers and nobles to support him against her, and Irene retorted by forbidding them to have any intercourse with John. This struggle was now to reach the height of passion round the deathbed of the emperor. The last ten pages of Anna's narrative give a vivid account of the progress of her father's illness. She was appointed to a kind of presidency over the skilled medical men who were summoned from all parts of the empire to check the mysterious illness of a gouty old man of seventy. I will quote only that when relics failed to improve his condition, they applied a red-hot iron to his stomach, to counterpoise the pain at the extremities, perhaps, and when this brought about no relief, removed him to the Mangana Palace, near what is now known as the Seraglio Point. Irene watched her husband night and day, carefully excluding John and although the monks assured her that he would live to visit the holy sepulchre, she shed more tears than the waters of the Nile, Anna says. In the afternoon of 15th August, 1118, Alexis lay dying on his purple couch. The description of the scene which closes Anna's narrative has reached us only in a torn and fragmentary condition but the chronicle of the monk Zonaras, who lived about this date, is full and authoritative, and it is supported by the chronicle of Nicetas. Their account of that last scene in the life of Alexis shows that Anna Komnena crowns her work with a masterpiece of deliberate lying. She depicts her mother overwhelmed with sorrow at the impending loss of her husband crying that thrones and crowns are vanity, and calling for the black robe of a nun, if not actually shearing her golden tresses, before the last breath has left her husband's body. Of the real features of the scene, there is merely a faint and vague report that John is hurrying to the main palace and the city is disturbed. The truth is less touching, more dramatic, Availing himself of a temporary absence of his mother, probably bribing the guards, John entered the room and approached the bed of the dying and speechless monarch. Alexis was still conscious, but whether he gave his ring to John, or the son detached it from his finger, the chroniclers are not agreed. No doubt Alexis was too feeble to detach and give it 
and merely looked assent when John detached it. Alexis had always favored John. By the time Irene returned, John was galloping across the imperial domain to the chief palace, either Daphne or, more probably, Bucolian, and the empress was furious. She angrily observed to Alexis that his son was seizing the throne while he yet lived. Alexis, feebly and equivocally, though some writers say that he smiled, lifted his hands and eyes toward heaven, as if to intimate that there was the only throne about which he was now concerned. Nicephorus Briennius was summoned, and Irene urged him to unite with her in claiming the throne. He refused, and she returned to her husband. The last words, loudly and sharply spoken, which she gave the dying man, were, Husband, while you lived, you were full of guile, saying one thing and thinking another. You are no better now that you are dying. We may assume that Alexis had deceived her about the succession. He died that evening so completely deserted that there were no ministers to perform the ceremonial services over his remains. The interest had passed to the main palace. John had found before the door a regiment of the Varangians, who, even when he showed his father's ring, refused to allow him to enter. But they grounded their formidable two-edged axes and stood aside when he swore a false oath that his father was already dead and had appointed him successor. He at once secured the palace and the crown, and the reign of Irene Komnena was over. The hope of Anna Komnena shattered. John would not even issue to attend the funeral of Alexis, so determined he was to hold the palace. The women were bitten by the quiet, ugly little youth they had despised, and a few words of the chroniclers dismissed them from the stage of history. Irene, changing her name to that of Xeni, retired to a monastery which she had built in the city. Curiously enough, a manuscript copy of the rules of this monastery has survived and been published, so that we have an interesting glimpse of Irene's later years and of the monastic life of the time. The inmates were to number between thirty and forty, were to sleep in a common dormitory, and were to elect a prefect. Besides the steward, who was to be a eunuch, and the two chaplains, who must be monks and eunuchs, no man was ever to enter the monastery, and the reception of visitors was strictly controlled. There was midnight office to be chanted, and the remaining offices and meals and other details were planned much as in a modern convent, a Latin word unknown in the East. Each nun was permitted to have a bath once a month. Irene little dreamed, when she sanctioned this ascetic scheme, that she would one day be forced to adopt it. But the last glimpse we catch of her in the chronicles 
suggests that she did not embrace it in all its rigor. Fifteen years later, when another Irene came from the west to wed the Emperor Manuel, she noticed among the crowd of notabilities who welcomed her in the city an aged lady whose dark monastic robe was relieved by strips of purple and edges of gold. When she asked the name of this royal nun, she learned that it was the widow of the great Alexis. Probably Irene tempered the diet and prayers, as well as the robe of the monastery. She was then seventy-seven years old, and cannot have lived much longer. Anna Komnena seems to have retained her liberty and rank at the accession of her brother. He soon proved his worthiness of the crown, and the corrupt nobles and ministers, shrinking from his inflexible justice, gathered darkly about Anna and Briennius. Anna was the most active spirit in the plot, and it would have succeeded, but for the irresolution or humanity of Briennius. The doorkeeper of the palace was bribed, and John might have been murdered in his bed. When Briennius failed to use the advantage, Anna turned upon him with fury. Nicetas tells us that she complained, in somewhat obscene language, that nature had made her a woman and him a man. John was content to confiscate their property, though when he gave Anna's luxurious palace and all it contained to his Turkish minister, that strange type of Byzantine official begged his master to lay aside his anger and permit him to restore the palace to Anna. Some years later she entered her mother's monastery, probably when her husband died in 1128, and lived there at least twenty years, writing her famous work, The Alexiad, a chronicle of her father's deeds. That work, affected, insincere and ambitious, reflects the character of its author. Nor can its lavish use of the art of suppressing some facts and enlarging others efface from our memory the ignoble attitude of Irene and Anna by the bedside of the dying Alexis and toward his legitimate heir. End of section 18 Recording by Mike Botez